Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From the pages of The New Yorker, this is the Weekly Comment Podcast. In Faking It, Steve Cole writes about how, in attacking the media, the president has in many ways strengthened it. Last December, Variety and other news outlets reported that Donald Trump planned to serve as an executive producer for The Celebrity Apprentice while he was president. Kellyanne Conway, appearing on CNN, defended the president-elect's prerogatives. But the next day, Trump tweeted that the story was fake news. Since then, he has tweeted about fake news more than 150 times. On a single day in September, he did so eight times in apparent frustration over coverage of his administration's response to Hurricane Maria's devastation of Puerto Rico. And of course, Trump regularly invokes the fake news Russian collusion story, as he named it last summer. He has attacked coverage of the Russia investigation more than a dozen times on Twitter alone. One of the greatest terms I've come up with is fake, Trump said on Mike Huckabee's talk show in October. In fact, the phrase fake news has been around for more than a century. The president's strategy has been successful, however, in at least one respect. He has appropriated a term that has often been used to describe the propaganda and the lies masquerading as news, emanating from Russia and elsewhere, which proliferated on Facebook, YouTube, and other social media platforms during the 2016 election campaign. These manufactured stories, Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump for president, among them, poisoned the news ecosystem and may have contributed to Trump's victory. Judging from the president's tweets, his definition of fake news is credible reporting that he doesn't like. But he complicates the matter by issuing demonstrably false statements of his own, which inevitably make news. Trump has brought to the White House bully pulpit a disorienting habit of telling lies, big and small, without evident shame. Since 2015, PolitiFact has counted 329 public statements by Trump that it judges to be mostly or entirely false. In comparison, its count of such misstatements by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is 13. The president also publicizes calumnies that vilify minorities. Last Wednesday morning, he outdid himself by retweeting unverified, incendiary anti-Muslim videos posted by Jada Franzen, the deputy leader of Britain First, a far-right group. Through a spokesman, Prime Minister Theresa May responded that Trump was wrong to promote the agenda of a group that spreads hateful narratives which peddle lies. The following day, members of Parliament denounced the president, using such epithets as fascist and stupid. It was a scene without precedent in the century-old military alliance between the United States and Britain. Trump's tactics echo those of previous nativist populist politicians, but his tweets also draw on the contemporary idioms of the alt-right. This is a loose movement, as the researchers Alice Marwick and Rebecca Lewis have written, best understood as an amalgam of conspiracy theorists, techno-libertarians, white nationalists, men's rights advocates, trolls, anti-feminists, anti-immigration activists, 
and bored young people who express a self-referential culture in which anti-Semitism, occult ties, and Nazi imagery can be explained either as entirely sincere or completely tongue-in-cheek. Trump is no alt-right digital news geek, yet his Twitter feed is similarly ambiguous. He seems to provoke his opponents for the pleasure of offending them, but when he is called to account, he often claims that he was just joking. Sometimes he promotes conspiracy theories to insult personal nemeses, as he did last week when he tweeted baseless speculation about the MSNBC host Joe Scarborough's connection to the unsolved mystery of an intern's death. The president's tweets slamming CNN, The Times, NBC News, and other media organizations can be comical and weird, but they do serious harm. Last week, a Libyan broadcaster cited one of Trump's tweets about CNN in an attempt to discredit a report by the network on the persistence of slavery in that country. And when the leader of a nation previously devoted to the promulgation of press freedom worldwide seeks so colorfully to delegitimize journalism, he inevitably gives cover to foreign despots who threaten reporters in order to protect their own power. At home, the Trump effect is more subtle, but corrosive. The First Amendment does not appear to be an existential danger. On the Supreme Court, justices appointed by both Republican and Democratic presidents endorse expansive ideas about free speech, even as they debate interpretations. Yet many of the rights that working journalists enjoy stem from state laws and from the case-by-case -case decisions of local judges. The climate that Trump has helped create may undermine some of these protections. For example, by prompting state legislatures to overturn shield laws that encode the rights of reporters to protect confidential sources. Trump's alignment with right-wing publishers such as Infowars and Breitbart, some of which see Fox News as the old-school communications arm of an obsolete Republican establishment, reflects a broader fragmentation of the media. Amid the cacophony of the digital era, publishers and advertisers prize readers who are deeply engaged, not just clicking around sites. News organizations as distinct as The Times and Breitbart now think of their audiences as communities in formation, bound by common values. A more openly fractional political journalism need not portend the death of fact-driven, truth-seeking, fair-minded reporting. Yet excellent journalism typically follows a form of the scientific method, prioritizing evidence, transparency, and the replicability of findings. Journalism grounded in an ideology can be discredited by the practitioner's preemptive assumptions. Fortunately, in attacking the media, Trump has in many ways strengthened it. This year, The Times, The Washington Post, and many other independent professional enterprises have reminded the country why the founders enshrined a free press as a defense against abusive power. Among other achievements, the media's coverage of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation has made transparent the seriousness of its findings so far and constrained the president's transparent desire to interfere. Last Friday, Mueller dropped his latest bombshell, a plea agreement with Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor who admitted that in January he lied to the FBI about his contacts with Sergei Kislyak, then Russia's ambassador to the United States.
The court papers filed with Flynn's plea lay out a story of how senior members of the Trump transition team asked Flynn to communicate with Russian officials on matters of U.S. foreign policy. The papers also contain a reference to a discussion that Flynn had with a very senior member of the transition team. A characterization that suggests that the list of names of who that may be is a short one. The chances that history will remember Mueller's investigation of Trump and his closest advisors as fake news grow slimmer by the day. That was Faking It by Steve Cole from The New Yorker magazine, December 11, 2017. Narrated by Jamie Rennell. Also in the magazine this week, Jeffrey Tubin on the collusion question, Rebecca Mead on Success Academy, John Lee Anderson on Nicolas Maduro, Calvin Tompkins on Peter Doig, Anthony Lane on The Shape of Water, Toby Hazlitt on Susan Sontag, Alex Ross on New Operas, Andrew Morant on Journalistic Webcasting, Peter Sheldahl on Stephen Shore, Fiction by Kristen Rupenian and more. Audible.com produces a weekly audio edition of The New Yorker. To subscribe or to download individual issues, we invite you to go to www.audible.com and enter New Yorker in the search box. To subscribe to the comment podcast, go to www.newyorker.com or to the New Yorker room on the iTunes store.